Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. And we're back. Back again. What's that from? You gonna sing more of it? Oh, Slim Shady. Yeah. Mm. Eminem is in his 50s. How crazy is that? (sighs) I just can't get over all of the sampling of early 2000s music that's happening in current music now. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, so this is what that feels like. Yeah. Hearing Destiny's Child and Fergie being sampled in different current songs. (laughs) Well, I was talking to someone the other day who was who has like a teenager, teenage child, and doesn't have a teenager like in a cage in their basement, has a teenage child, and was saying that the teenager said something like, um, oh, that look is so 2002 or something, or Y2K. And the person said, what do you mean? What does Y2K even look like? And I said, that's how you know when you've become old is when you look back and you can't identify what that decade looked like or sounded like. You know, it's like you have an idea of what the 80s was and a stereotype if you had to dress up as the 80s for a birth for a Halloween party or the 70s or the 60s or even the 90s. But the 2000s is when I got old because I can't if I had to come up with a 2000s Halloween costume, I couldn't do it. Oh my god, I can see it so clearly. <laughs> see, that's that's our age gap there. So that's my new official definition. If you can't think of a Halloween costume for a certain decade, that's the decade in which you got old. I mean, I suppose I've gotten old, but it also gets hard to watch the recirculation because what would the costume of today, if you were like the Gen Z costume of today, it would be... 90s clothes again (laughs) (laughs) well that's when you're that's when you're super old that's when you're super super old is when you could identify it but you know which decade it originated in because you see the bucket hats the (laughs) high-waisted jeans I, i see it all the time whenever i'm on campus and it's just like wow you're really making the same mistakes that we did are people wearing juicy couture uh that would be a great thing to bring back (laughs) i mean that's the only thing i could really think of if i had to come up with a 2000s halloween costume but think of like (laughs) i mean all of those like disney channel pop stars of that era with like a tank top but also like a t-shirt underneath it (laughs) and like not quite capris but kind of capris (laughs) like Like dresses over bell-bottom jeans and I mean I could do it but I mean I think all it is is really that's the age at which you stopped paying super laser focused attention to the trends you know so you are kind of aware of it but you couldn't come up with those finer details because you were you know, like working a job or raising kids or whatever you were doing at that time that you got old. And it's like you mature enough to stop caring. (laughs) It's like, I know what looks good on my body at this point. Yeah. And I know what's comfortable. So like, I'm fine. (laughs) I don't need to know what the trend is. Except when it comes to a 
a himper. What what was the name for like men wearing rompers? Not a himper. A romp him. A romp him. <laughs> I mean that was that was a fad that didn't last long enough or go broad enough. I I was too tall. Mm, yeah, same. <laughs> Having I, I... connected shorts and <laughs> pants, it's uh, that's gotta cover a lot of area. <laughs> yes, I'm with you. I mean, when they started making tankinis or basically like one pieces that were cut in half so you could wear a two-piece without it being like a brazilian thong bathing suit that was my golden era because (laughs) a one-piece a one-piece women's bathing suit is the worst for a tall person truly a nightmare it is a nightmare yeah i mean a woman's bathing suit in general seems awful yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't have energy to care anymore. I've hit that point of like, you know, the meme, like the beach is going to get whatever body I give it. Like that's where <laughs> I'm at right now. <laughs> I've entered into a an odd era of aging, I suppose. Yeah, you're in the no man's land right now. But I'm also in the like... Other than, like, eggs, dairy, and produce, I have already purchased every ingredient for Thanksgiving. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, By the end of the first week of October. But I think now we have to be really careful and we have to separate what's Andrew from what's 35. That feels like it's really 98% in the Andrew column. (laughs) It's like every time I go to the grocery store, another item is missing because of air quote supply chain oh i know well here's where it comes in handy that i love pumpkin and pumpkin spice so much every year i stock up so i have supplies that i got last year for just in case and to carry me throughout the year that i didn't (laughs) use so if you need any pumpkin spice seasoning just let me know because i got you i've also entered into the phase of Making a will. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's an interesting. <laughs> I mean, you could thing. just be irresponsible like I was and just, you know, not do it till you're 40. It's because of podcasts. <laughs> and then you learn something like the recommendation of if you have more than $10,000 in assets in the state of California, you need a will. <laughs> Yeah. Or the state of California will just take your shit. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, there you go. But you haven't reached the stage yet where it still really feels real that you will be dead someday. <laughs> <laughs> that, that that document that you're fretting about right now is actually going to be used by someone at some point. <laughs> well, and all of my beneficiaries are older than I am, so... <laughs> <laughs> We'll see what life brings. Well, then you have to play that fun game of like death dominoes, who goes down first, and then all the different scenarios for the order in which all of the people you love will die. Oh, I mean, if it if I'm single, then it's just all of my sister's kids. Yeah, but that scenario only gets enacted if you're the last one to go. Like, yeah. You have to write it as if you're the first one to go, because... Who knows? But then you have to have those scenarios for 
if you're not the first to go. Yeah. <laughs> or you just redraft it every time someone drops dead. I'm good with contingencies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It'll yeah. be the most contingent will in history. <laughs> but are you to the stage of life where you have contingencies like, you know, if if Sister A doesn't bring X to Thanksgiving for five <laughs> years in a row, then <laughs> I disown her or whatever. No. Nothing fun Not like yet. that. Uh, that's so knives out. I feel like that's my next chapter is when I start getting really... <laughs> bitter and vindictive in my estate planning yeah you have to prove who you voted for (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah wow are we capable of having a conversation or a banter that doesn't go to a dark weird place have we ever done that (laughs) i feel like we have Well, maybe not dark but weird is subjective Agreed. Agreed. Well, we have a lot to cover and we're still doing bite-sized. Are you ready to jump in? Very ready. All right. So let's do this. And if you have not listened to last week's episode 54, Son of Sam, part one, I suggest that you stop what you're doing and do that now. And also go check out the post on social media where we kind of illustrate a lot of what Andrew talked about last week, but so fascinating. I said it last week. I'll say it again. It's truly shocking what a hellhole major U.S. cities were in the 1970s. For real. (laughs) For real. Uh, So this week for part two, we're going to talk about crimes um, and a little bit about the background of the person who we now know as Son of Sam. So that's where I'm going to jump in to begin. So born to Elizabeth Broder Falco and Joseph Kleinman, Richard David Falco came into this world on June 1st, 1953 in Brooklyn, New York. Elizabeth was a divorced waitress and Joseph was married to someone who was not Elizabeth. So shortly after his birth, Falco was placed for adoption. Middle-aged Bronx residents and hardware store proprietors Pearl and Nathan Berkowitz adopted the infant and changed his name to David Richard Berkowitz, switched the first and middle name, and gave him their last name. Now, Berkowitz had a typical, if somewhat troubled, childhood. He attended public school in the Bronx, and he showed signs of above-average intelligence. But he really didn't have any interest in formal schooling, and at an early age, he began committing petty crimes, up to and including setting small fires. So, ding, 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 ding. Never a good sign. <laughs> Except, okay, we, we set a lot of fires as children, but never to the fire department had to come. It was just like, you were like, you know, stupid kids on a farm with fire, but... (laughs) Yeah, like, playing survivalists in the woods, but not, like, in the city in trash cans or whatnot. Again, see our social media from last week. Yes. (laughs) So, although the Berkowitzes were not wealthy, they reportedly doted on Berkowitz. And at least one psychotherapist was consulted about his misbehavior during his young childhood. But apparently there are no records, kind of school records. He wasn't kicked out of school. There was no kind of 
major blips at this point, but neighbors reported that he was difficult and could be a bully. In 1967, when Berkowitz was just 14, Pearl, his mom, died of breast cancer. And at this point, what could have been just kind of childhood difficulties that he eventually outgrew became more serious. Now, you know I always like to tee up the wild speculation out of our asses part of things, which is kind of my favorite. So I want to just make an aside here because I think it's really interesting to note that it wasn't long after his mom's death that the Zodiac Killer became active in the Bay Area. So during this really pivotal time in his life, time of grief and turmoil, the young Berkowitz would have been seeing news about the Zodiac all over the place. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So just a little aside there, cross-promotion for our Zodiac episodes. And I say turmoil because Berkowitz really disliked Nathan's second wife, which, again, I think just speaks to the grief of that time. I think it's hard to transition, and I don't have the exact timing, but it was in a fairly short period of time. The new family, if you could call it that at this point, struggled to find peace in their four-room apartment. So again, they're living in the city, close quarters. He's coming into his teenage years. And this kind of harkens back in some ways to the Lizzie Borden case. You know, we saw that Emma, the older sister, had a lot more, had a lot harder time accepting her new stepmother. She was about the same age when her father remarried. So difficult times there, and surely a lot of grief for Berkowitz. In 1971, Berkowitz graduated from high school and joined the Army, where he was stationed initially at Fort Knox in Kentucky, and later as a member of the infantry in South Korea. His time in the service was unremarkable, and in June 1974, he was honorably discharged. So at 21, Berkowitz was a free agent once again. Without much of a plan and strained relationships at home, Berkowitz sought out his birth mother. And sometime in late 1974, he tracked down Elizabeth, who went by Betty. The reunion initially seemed like a hopeful development in his life, but after a few visits, Betty told Berkowitz the details of his conception and placement for adoption. Now, there isn't strong evidence on this point, but many writers have postulated that Betty placed Berkowitz for adoption because his bio dad threatened to end their affair if she kept the baby. But whatever the specifics of the details that she shared with him, it really deeply, truly disturbed Berkowitz. As much as he had longed for this reunion, he stopped communicating with her on a regular basis at this time. Some later researchers and psychologists who have written about him say this event was the primary crisis that shattered his identity and triggered what followed. So that's a little bit about his background. But as you know, we like to focus really on the crimes and on the victims more than anything, and so I want to start walking through the crimes. So in the spring of 1975, Berkowitz enrolled in Bronx Community College. He tried, or he appeared to try, to settle into young adulthood, but it sounds like he didn't have much direction, and beneath the surface, all was definitely not well. So on the evening of December 24th, 1975, 
in Co-op City, which is a housing development, a very large housing development in Northeast Bronx, which is where he still lived with his father and stepmother. Berkowitz brutally attacked two young women with a hunting knife. A young woman who was never identified and 15-year-old Michelle Foreman, who was stabbed five times and spent a week in the hospital. Awful. Yeah, it's terrible. It's so brutal. And Berkowitz wasn't a suspect in this crime at the time, and it was really just one of many unsolved cases of brutality plaguing New York City at the time, as you talked about last week. But what's interesting about this is the method. So he used a knife. Um, It was very face-to-face, very personal. But also, in the sources that I read, one of the victims, the one who was not identified, was described as being Hispanic. And I wonder if this is a person who was undocumented and, and never, you know, feared getting help from the police. But the fate of that unidentified victim remains unknown. So Michelle mm-hmm. lived, but the other victim, we don't know. Again, Berkowitz was never suspected in this. He claimed responsibility and described this crime later in his life. Early in 1976, Berkowitz moved out of his father's apartment in Co-op City and got a place of his own in Yonkers, which is a suburb about 25 minutes to the northwest of the city. That spring, he dropped out of college and found work as a taxi driver at Co-op City Taxi Company. Now, I couldn't find tons of detail on what this time was like for him, practically or emotionally, but with hindsight, I think it's pretty safe to say that he was adapting and planning. Because on July 29, 1976, in the early morning hours, the Berkowitz that so many of us know showed himself for the first time. Around 1 a.m. in Pelham Bay, a Bronx neighborhood, Donna Loria, 18, an EMT, and Jody Valenti, 19, a nurse, were sitting in Jody's car talking about their night out at a local club. As Donna got out of the car to leave, a man carrying a paper bag approached the car so quickly that it startled and angered Donna. He pulled a gun from the bag, crouched down, and took aim. Donna was hit by one bullet that killed her instantly. Jody was shot in her thigh and a third bullet missed both of them. The shooter turned and walked away quickly. So Jody survived her injury and said that she didn't recognize the killer. She described him as a white male in his 30s with a light complexion, medium height, and a little on the stockier build. She said that his hair was short, dark, and curly in a quote mod style. So I think that just means a bob. Just very quick tangent. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I feel incapable of judging someone's height. Very much so. Like I I can get rough, like tall or short. Yeah. But like the difference between 5'10 and 6'2 or 3 to me, I couldn't tell you like 5'7 to like 510 I couldn't tell you like yeah it's always so interesting when I mean I guess they have to pick something but like to be able to say like I think he was 58 it it means nothing to my brain right right well and I think people are 
notoriously bad at that. It's not just you. I think everyone is really bad at this. And just a little fun fact, if you've never noticed, the next time you go into a convenience store or a gas station, look at the door going out. Usually there's a little sticker strip next to the door that has height measurements on it. And that's so if someone comes in and robs the store, the cashier has something to benchmark against to give a general height description. I try to use door frames uh, when I'm swiping through Tinder to try to (laughs) figure out uh, what someone's height may resemble. Well, I mean, there's also the simple, you know, formula for dating apps. Men are always a minimum of four inches shorter than what they say. And women usually at least 20, 25 pounds less than what they say. But I find that people don't even put their height on Tinder. Oh. Or at least gay tender. Well, I mean, I've been out of the dating world so long. I'm I'm a pre-tender person, so. <laughs> and Hinge has, like, a mandatory field where you put your height. Oh, really? But yeah, tender, it's just like, this person could be 5'3", they could be 6'9", I don't know. Ugh. Yeah, that's tricky. Anyway, sorry, that was a big tangent from... uh... No, but I think it's a good one because it speaks to how unreliable eyewitnesses are in a lot of details. And not because they don't want to be reliable, but A, you've got the trauma of the event. Most people can't remember traumatic incidents very well at all. And then you also have the fact that people are just not very good at estimating certain things about people. And even when it comes to skin color... I mean, if you're just, let's say you're in the midst of a crime and you're focusing on someone's wrist, which is the only part of their skin that you can see, can you tell from someone's wrist the difference between a light-skinned black person and a dark-skinned white person? Like, you know, I mean, and maybe you can, and maybe some people can, but it's like very unreliable and so much is based on biases and stereotypes. So, you know, I think In investigating eyewitness accounts, it's all you really have to go on. But in terms of prosecuting cases, it's the most unreliable kind of evidence you can have. Mm -hmm. So in this case, Jody's description squared up with something that Donna's father claimed to have seen. He said that he saw a similar man sitting in a yellow compact car that was parked nearby. So they were near Donna's house. You know, obviously Jody was dropping Donna off. Um, And so he had seen something and you can just imagine this kind of anxious dad waiting for his young daughter to come home at the end of the night, you know, peeking out the window. This is before cell phones. He can't be texting her. Where are you? Where are you? And he sees something and just kind of makes that mental note of it. And then it turns out in an hour's time or 30 minutes time, this is the person that shoots his daughter to death. Ugh. So neighbors also reported that there was an unfamiliar yellow compact car that had been cruising around the area for hours before the shooting. So again, if you think back, I said, you know, it's during this period that he's kind of planning. And I think it's really interesting. You know, we talk a lot about MO and, you know, how how criminals come up with their MO or their signatures. And, you know, this first crime that he later admitted to, the stabbing, was similar in certain ways. The location was similar, the targets were similar, but the difference between, the difference between stabbing and shooting is so dramatic. But I think this is also one of the longest breaks between his crimes. 
it was months between the first attack and the first shooting attack or the second attack. And Mm -hmm. it just makes you wonder, what was he going through? You know, he had this, or I mean, and I'm speculating here, so put this in speculation mode, italicized verbally. You know, he wants to kill someone. He comes up with this vague idea he's going to stab someone because knives are really easy to get. And then he goes and he does it, and whatever it is, it didn't scratch his itch. Um, or it was too up close and personal, or he felt it was too risky because they saw his, you know, who knows what's going on in his deranged mind. But then he kind of retreats. He moves to Yonkers. He distances himself from that crime. He gets a job as a taxi driver where he's able to spend a lot of time cruising around, just checking things out. And then he comes out, you know, several months later with this completely different MO in terms of method. I don't know if I can explain it right. The switch from knife to gun feels like... Ugh, there's not a way that I can... I'm like trying to think of it in my head that's not like fucked up. Like, it feels more pathetic. Not like... The, but that's wrong because obviously like stabbing someone is not like heroic or like I strong. I know. It's just like he's gonna kill people, but he's like... It, again, it's not right, but in my mind, it's like the feeling that it's even more pathetic to do it from further away, more anonymous. Mm-hmm. I can't rectify exactly what that feeling is, so hopefully it makes sense to the listeners. I think I think totally, and these are the kinds of details that I think profilers use when they make a profile of someone is, you know, if all murder is cowardly, murder at a distance is more cowardly. It doesn't mean that like you say, murder up close is heroic, but it's a very kind of cowardly, risk-averse way to murder someone. Yeah. After this happened, there was a bit of a break, and this being the first shooting crime of his, and the fact that no one suspected him of the first crime, the stabbing, or connected them in any kind of way... Time went on. This was added to the pile of violent crime that was piling up in New York City at the time. But on October 23rd, 1976, a similar shooting occurred in a secluded residential area of Flushing in the Queens borough of New York City. Carl DeNaro, who's 20 and a security guard, and Rosemary Keenan, who was 18 and a Queens College student, were sitting in Rosemary's parked car when the windows were shattered by a bullet. Rosemary instinctively just started driving the car to get away and get help. The panicked couple didn't even realize at the time that someone had been shooting at them. She just reacted, even though Carl was bleeding from a bullet wound to his head. Oof. Yeah. So Rosemary, thankfully, had only superficial injuries, and I say only knowing that that word just doesn't really fit in this description and those were from the broken glass but carl eventually needed a metal plate to replace a portion of his skull but again mercifully he survived the attack but neither of them saw the attacker police determined that the bullets embedded in the car were 44 caliber but they were so deformed that they really didn't have any expectation that they would be able to connect them to a particular weapon mm-hmm. 
Because Carl had shoulder length hair, because again, remember this is the mid 70s, so we're in the midst of hippie, hippie phase. Police thought that the shooter had maybe mistaken him for a woman. And as luck would have it, Rosemary's father was a veteran NYPD police detective. And so that fact alone triggered an intense investigation of this crime. Like the first shooting with Donna and Jody, though, there didn't seem to be any motive for the shooting, and the case kind of floundered. Now, these two shooting cases, they obviously have a lot in common, but police didn't really associate them with one another initially, partly because they occurred in different boroughs and were investigated by different police precinct. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're not from the United States and you don't know how the police department works in New York City, and I'm certainly not an expert, but New York City is huge, obviously. It has different districts that are called boroughs, and each of those have their own complete police departments that in many ways are distinct, almost as different towns. And then within each of those, they have various precincts divided by area. So we've seen this so many times, Andrew. When killers are active in different jurisdictions, it can really buy serial killers a lot of time because of mm-hmm. lack of communication, especially back then. You know, there I think there have been advances made to mitigate this, you know, hurdle. But in the 70s, I think most of those didn't exist. Yeah, and if someone were to understand that, it would be easy to exploit. Exactly. A la the conversation around the Zodiac killer that we had. Exactly. And that was probably discussed, you know. So at this point now, we're maybe seven, eight years out of the Zodiac. So there's probably been a lot written about why they haven't caught him, i.e. lack of cooperation or communication between um, jurisdictions. A little over a month after that crime, on November 27, 1976, high school students Donna DeMaisi, who was 16, and Joanne Lamino, who was 18, were walking home from a movie shortly after midnight. They were chatting on the porch of Joanne's home in Floral Park, Long Island, when a young man dressed in military fatigues came up to them and began to ask for directions. He reportedly said in a high-pitched voice, can you tell me how to get, and then he trailed off and pulled out a revolver, and he shot each of them one time. And then after they fell to the ground, he fired several more times, striking the apartment building and striking them, and then he ran away. A neighbor heard the gunshots and rushed out of the apartment building and saw a, quote, blonde man running past gripping a pistol in his left hand. Now, Donna had been shot in the neck, but the wound wasn't life-threatening. Joanne, though, was hit in the back, and she was hospitalized in serious condition. Ultimately, she lived, but she was rendered paraplegic. Hmm. Ugh, this guy is just fucked up. It's so messed up. It's so messed up. And, Andrew, we're not even done. It's crazy. There's so much more to tell. As someone not intimately familiar with this case, it's more people than I realized. And like you said, it's not done. These, But, you know, these are our our bite-sized episodes as you recover. So they're a little bit smaller than traditional. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for your patience. But we have a lot more to tell. And 
we will be back next week with part three. Uh, so more more awful crimes, but then fortunately for the world, how he gets caught and what exactly. happens to him. Exactly, exactly. Well, as always, listeners, we appreciate the hell out of you. Absolutely. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 